Good evening, everyone, or good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. My name is Simon Lester. I am the Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policies, Trade Policy at the Cato Institute. Uh, with me today is a great set of panelists. We have Henry Gao, an Associate Professor of Law at Singapore Management University. We have Neha Mishra, a lecturer at Australian National University College of Law. And we have David Weller, Director of Economic and Trade Policy at Google. Thanks to all of them for making the time to be here. Turning to our topic for today's event, national debates over policies that affect the flow of, flow of data have been heating up as censorship, surveillance, control over personal data and requirements to store data locally have emerged as contentious political issues in many, if not all countries. And at the same time, governments are negotiating international agreements that constrain their ability to regulate domestically in this area. What we're going to be talking about for the next hour is the relationship between these two things and asking the following question, can international rules improve domestic regulation of digital trade? My goal in setting up this event was to appeal to two sets of audiences. The first set is people who know very little about the topic and are just trying to get up to speed. And I myself still fall into this category to some extent. I feel like I'm playing catch up because I know there are a lot of smart people like our panelists who have been thinking about this topic for years. So for this audience, we'll go over the basics. What are people talking about when they talk about digital barriers to trade? What are some examples? What could international agreements do about any of this? And then the second set is people who already know a lot about this uh, and wanna hear some of the nuances. How specifically can international agreements help here? What should the, the, uh, the international agreements say? How should governance work? So let's dive into all of that now. The way we're gonna proceed is that each speaker will go for about five to seven minutes, and then I'll ask a series of questions to get us into the nuances of the issue. While I'm doing that, the audience should feel free to submit their own questions, and I'll either try to work them into mine uh, or just those ask those questions separately. So you can submit these via the event webpage or Facebook or Twitter or YouTube with the hashtag CatoTrade. So we're gonna start off with David, uh, who will talk about the main ways that, that governments are regulating or not regulating that are causing problems for businesses or consumers. And then Neha will give an overview of how international agreements uh, address problems with domestic regulation or non-regulation in the area of digital policy. And then finally, Henry will tell us about the different perspectives of China and the US and potential convergence between the two in some areas. So let's go now to David to kick things off. Over to you, David. Great, thanks, thanks, Simon, uh, and thanks to the Cato team for having me. Um, this is such an important um, and challenging conversation. I'm glad we have two esteemed academics on on the panel as well because they really are tricky issues. Um, but before turning to your um, specific question on um, sort of the types of regulation that we're, we're we're seeing in the digital space and kind of their trade effects. I wanted to take a step back and um, just say a word about the stakes um, and really what the internet means for trade. And I think, you know, you talked about kind of different audiences for your conversation and, and sort of for, um, uh, for a non-trade technology audience, I think uh, they know quite instinctively um, about the nature of the internet as a uh, open network of networks that was designed fundamentally um, to promote openness and interoperability 
um, and really maximized interconnection and is by design really a global commons. And, you know, it doesn't take long to think about that in a trade context and appreciate kind of the power of that kind of technology um, and technology model for, for trade. And this is already a well-known story in terms of um, how the internet is flattening uh, trade, expanding who participates in trade. And I hate to say this sometimes because it feels, you know, very grand and highfalutin, but I really think democratizing trade. And, and that's by now a pretty well-known um, story. Um, it is worth pausing for a moment though and thinking about sort of in the COVID context of the past year, what that has um, what, what that has meant. And I just wanted to kind of flag a couple of statistics that bring it home um, uh, uh, to light. Um, the first is that um, in, in, in the United States, one in three U.S. small businesses report over the past year that digital tools have kept them open, essentially. Um, and some portion of those, um, uh, some decent portion of those point to uh, the expanded customer base and, and, and markets that they've been able to reach in a time of COVID. So as, you know, demand dropped uh, because of uh, different restrictions and obviously no one coming into, into into stores, but even you know even different economic impacts across geographies. Small businesses really being able to expand uh, their base, and and forty percent of small businesses um, say they're using digital tool ha, have been using digital tools to find new customers during COVID, including internationally. And that's just such a you think about the hardship of the past year plus. Um, that's such a powerful and important um, story. Um, you know, just as in to, to get more directly to your question, Simon, of sort of the kinds of regulation that we're seeing um, and how it's impeding um, at times some of this model. Um, I think it's 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 first first just worth noting, of course, regulation like for any technology is critical. Ultimately, it's actually technology will not get properly implemented and harvested and taken up without proper uh, uh, regulation. And indeed, in the era of the internet, despite uh, sort of um, conventional wisdom, it has not been an unregulated space for the past 20 years. There's new, new, new regulation that needs to be developed, but there's lots of regulation in the internet space. But I just want to um, note that I don't think this is a conversation about how does regulation per se interfere with trade? That that being said, and, and as your, your setup kind of alluded to, the way regulation is pursued really can undermine some of the trade benefits and potential that I just spoke to, spoke about that we see from digital technologies and, and from um, from the internet. And so it's you know a bit of a story of you know you give it the you give it with one hand and taketh away. Uh, with, with, with another and, and, you know, trade policy can play a, a critical role in putting some parameters around that. And I just wanted to highlight um, kind of three areas of the kind of regulation that we're seeing that I think has, you know, trade has something to say about or regulatory trends. The first is really discrimination in closed markets, tilting the playing field in favor of local players and closing markets to foreign providers. You know, this is nothing new and this is sort of normal political economy and national politics we're just seeing it now play out in a different form factor um, in, in in the case of uh of digital the second is really lack of transparency and, and due process 
Um, and I think you often see this in the area of sort of new technologies and often technologies that touch, you know, critical social and other political matters, um, of, often of great political sensitivity in governments, um, not impo imposing kind of good rule of law approaches to regulation of a new technology. Again, this for any sort of trade lawyer, trade policy person, transparency, due process is kind of a very common norm. But again, sort of thinking about that in the trade context, um, the digital trade context. And then the third point I'd, I'd highlight and trend that we're really seeing is a lack of interoperability um, and really governments making digital policies in a vacuum. I think we are in a bit of a, um, you know, I, I don't know what the, the right adjective to describe our current state of affairs, but there is a active debate in almost every major and minor geography in the world about new regulation around um, digital issues, around online speech, around online markets, many, many privacy, many, many different issues. Um, and a lot of those are needed in good conversations, but we're seeing much too much of governments taking on those issues and addressing those issues in silos. Um, and when they don't think about how one country's sets of rules dealing with a common issue differ from another country's, um, then you 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 end up in a real um, mishmash, um, which sort of just as much as discrimination can really take away the benefits that the, that the technologies um, offer. So those are, I think, three broad trends that we see in the regulatory space um, that that I think threaten some of the digital trade um, uh, benefits, and that I think trade policy can uh, can help address. That's a great uh, background on the importance of digital trade, uh, some of some of the, the barriers, the hurdles that have come up, and also a very nice segue, I think, um, in, into what Neha will be talking about. So when we talk about these, the, the lack of interoperability um, between different you know, countries' uh, regimes, well, you, know, it, you might think, well, international agreements could help with that. So let's, uh, let's turn now to, to Neha to talk about how they, they have or, or might. Um, uh, thank you so much, Simon, and a big thank you to Kato and Simon for inviting me to this fantastic webinar. Um, so David provided a very good overview of, of the internet as and digital technologies as a tool for digital trade and as well as the interface of domestic regulation and digital trade in the real world. Um, and I, I completely agree with him that in a short span of time and in a rather dramatic manner, we are seeing different countries at different levels of digital advancement imposing a variety of new kinds of regulations in the digital sector and if you think of the changes they have been so swift because from uh, practically little to no regulation several years ago maybe about 15 20 years ago in many countries not all uh, we now are living in an era where we have heavy-handed regulation in most parts of the world uh, if not everywhere um, so this intersection of domestic digital policies and uh, uh, digital trade, uh, whether it's in areas such as data protection, cybersecurity, censorship, intellectual property, competition, I mean, the whole 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 range of areas uh, is, is definitely a challenge. And as David said, the diversity of regulatory approaches coupled with the differences in regulation, at least at a gra granular level, is often a challenge for trade policymakers alongside businesses as well. Uh, but on the positive side, I do think there is a now some uh, movement towards a common high-level approach in some areas of digital regulation, at least among 
like-minded countries. Now, when it comes to international trade agreements and digital policies, my view generally has been that international trade agreements do not necessarily stifle digital regulation. So I think of some of the mainstream views are that, you know, these are very harmful for digital regulation. That's not always the case. Uh, but of course, I should add some qualifications here, one of which is that uh, digital domestic digital regulations may be subject to principles, fundamental principles in international trade agreements, non-discrimination, transparency, certain obligations on perhaps on market access might be applicable, or there could be domestic regulations on services that might apply, although those disciplines are not as well developed. Uh, in the WTO law context. Uh, and the other aspect that we should keep in mind is, especially at the WTO and many FTAs, countries make sector-specific commitments on market access and national treatment. So the coverage of trade agreements, international trade agreements with respect to digital service services and digital technologies can really vary from country to country. Uh, of course, another important aspect uh, that would jump out when you think of the intersection of domestic policies and trade law are the exceptions uh, in international trade agreement. Um, and the question that often arises, given all these technologies developing and how digital trade evo is evolving, is whether these exceptions, even when the exceptions contained in more recent free trade agreements, whether they are relevant and they are suitable uh, to the policy problems that governments face in the digital world. Um, now, it's, it's good to, of course, note that there are a wide variety of exceptions. Now, if you compare, for instance, the WTO treaties uh, to the CPTPP style of exceptions, and now more recently to the RCEP, you see a whole range of uh, ways in which governments uh, uh, or trading partners are coming to, together and drafting exceptions. Uh, and that has significant implications for regulatory autonomy as well. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if you just look at the old school WTO exceptions, uh, I think we can argue that they would normally, at least they can be contextually applied to the digital sector um, in what is known as evolutionary interpretation within the WTO law context. And also in line with what again, a lot of trained lawyers call the principle of technological neut neutrality. Um, so I think if say a dispute were to arise today, uh, say on a hard data localization measure in a country and presuming an obligation has been breached, uh, it is still quite likely that a WTO panel would take a more differential stance as far as the regulatory objectives are concerned, but they might be more stringent when it comes to, say, applying the weighing and balancing test if they are looking at a general exception or if they are looking at the conditions uh, for the security exception. Uh, uh, some of my in some of my work, what I have argued is that even if you were to apply some of these exceptions uh, from a purely techno-legal perspective without getting into some of the policy uh, challenges involved, uh, trade tribunals are still likely to face difficult questions. And one of the reasons, and I think David identified both of the reasons, one is that there's lack of consensus among countries on what norms are, um, and also the fact that uh, even within the internet and technical and policy community, there is there is an ongoing debate on what the best tools are. Should it be only regulations or can it be a combination of regulations and technological approaches? Uh, I mean, these are un unsolved debates. And in that environment of technology and policy uncertainty, 
it's it's difficult for trade agreements uh, to, 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 to determine the extent to which trade agreements should regulate digital policy. Now, on the point of non-regulation uh, in the digital domain and what WTO law, for instance, can do about it, I would say there isn't that much because WTO law does not set standards or does not prescribe frameworks for privacy or online consumer protection or cyber crimes. And, and that should be the case as well because it's not a standard setting body, it's a trade organization. Uh, but we see a perceptible change in FTAs. Uh, so for instance, there are quite a few FTAs, e-commerce chapters and FTAs that contain provisions on privacy or online consumer protection where countries have come together and agreed to ad adopt a common standards, especially where they are like-minded countries, they identify specific standards such as the OECD guidelines or the APEC framework or the UNCITRAL model laws. And the other perceptible shift is looking at new areas like AI or open government data and some of the new digital economy agreements, which would have traditionally never been considered trade issues. Uh, and while there can be many positive developments coming out of it, I think it's an area where uh, trade negotiators should also tread with a little bit of caution uh, because it's untested yet. Thank you. Tom. Thank you, Neha. Uh, that's, a, that's a great introduction to uh, the international component of all this. Um, and let's carry that forward a little bit by going to Henry to talk about the U.S.-China relationship, which is just obviously dominating the trade debate in general, uh, but here in, in digital trade is also important. So, so Henry, uh, why don't you, uh, you say a few words about that? Thank you, Simon. Uh, thank you, Cato, for uh, inviting me uh, to this uh, really interesting discussion on digital trade issues. Now, uh, in a paper that I published in 2018 in the Journal of International Economic Law, uh, I uh, argue that uh, when you look at digital trade, uh, the U.S. actually focus on digital aspects, while China focus on the trade aspects. And now, uh, actually today, uh, I'm going to expand the horizon a little bit to also include the EU uh, in this uh, uh, discussion as well, because the EU with the uh, introduction of the GDPR and other digital trade initiatives have uh, uh, rapidly become a major player on this issue. So if you look at the different models, the three different models, uh, these uh, three different jurisdictions are uh, kind of adopting. I would argue that they each focus on different aspects uh, of the link in digital trade. I mean, if you look at digital trade, they are basically, uh, they started out as a kind of a, a bilateral interaction between the firm uh, and the individual the consumer. So the firm provides you with the service and the individual are the consumers, but at the same time, they are also uh, the production force in that uh, they provide the data that the uh, firms will use. And then the government comes into play as a regulator, as uh, uh, someone to arbitrate between the firm on the one hand and the individual on the uh, other hand. So if you look at uh, the approaches of these three different jurisdictions, I would uh, call them uh, three different uh, so-called sovereignty models. For the U.S., uh, I would call it a firm sovereignty model because the U.S. approach is basically to let the business firms take charge. So the firms decide everything and the government already uh, intervene. And for China, the model is more like the state sovereignty model because the state uh, has uh, a lot of um, 
concerns regarding this so-called cyber security or uh, what the Chinese would even call cyber sovereignty. And uh, there's a lot of restrictions on not only uh, the firm, but also even on the individuals as to what you can do on the internet. And then finally, for the EU, what you have is what I would call an individual sovereignty model, because for the EU, uh, the most important thing is privacy protection, uh, where the uh, focus on the protection of personal information uh, on behalf of the consumer, uh, and uh, that is where the EU is coming in uh, to use its regulatory power to try to claim uh, a kind of a position in global digital trade regulation. So why do we have uh, uh, these three different approaches? Uh, I, I don't think these approaches are randomly chosen. Instead, uh, I would argue that they reflect deeper differences in their uh, respective commercial interests and also regulatory approaches uh, within each jurisdiction. So first of all, if you look at uh, the global uh, digital trade marketplace, you can see that it is largely dominated by um, American and Chinese firms. Among the 10 biggest digital trade firms in the world, six are American firms and four are Chinese firms. Of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they must share the same position uh, to the country. If you look closer, you can see that the US firms on the list tend to be pure uh, digital serv service firms. Firms like Facebook, Google, uh, and so on, they do not sell physical products, but they only provide digitized services. Uh, such as online search, social network, uh, or content services. Uh, so uh, for them, uh, the digital side of things is more important. In contrast, if you look at the Chinese firms on the list, uh, actually uh, two uh, of the largest ones are um, Alibaba and GD.com. They basically still sell uh, physical goods. So um, when you have firms focus on uh, digital services, no wonder that they would focus on the digital side, while for the Chinese, because they still sell traditional uh, physical goods, they would focus on the traditional trade side when it comes to digital trade. So that is uh, uh, what you see, for example, in uh, the uh, submissions by the US and China uh, in the WTO uh, joint statement initi uh, initiative uh, negotiation on uh, e-commerce where the U.S. tend to focus on issues such as free flow of data and a prohibition on data localization requirements, while the Chinese submission uh, has mainly uh, focused on the, uh, uh, for example, uh, trade facilitation issues on digital trade. So uh, that is a totally different focus. So uh, some people might argue that China still has uh, giant uh, peer digital firms like uh, Baidu and Tencent. Baidu was known as kind of the Google of China and Tencent is known as the Facebook of China. Uh, but um, uh, if you look again, if you look uh, closer at these two firms, I would argue that they are quite different from Google and Facebook because they serve predominantly the domestic Chinese market and most of their facilities and operations are based entirely in China. So they do not really share the demands of um, uh, truly global firms like Google and Facebook, uh, where they operate from every corner of the world. So of course, they would want to demand to have a free flow of data, like uh, uh, you know uh, what you see in the US uh, submissions. 
for the EU, the EU is not uh, a major player uh, in the uh, business sense because there's uh, no leading uh, EU firms in uh, the uh, e-commerce or digital service, uh, digital trade market. So uh, um, you could argue that uh, the restrictive privacy rules and the GDPR is a form of digital protectionism so that they can fend out the invasions of the American and Chinese firms into Europe and uh, in the rest of the world as well. The second difference among uh, these three uh, jurisdictions is their different uh, domestic regulatory approaches. In the U.S., uh, if you look at uh, the history of the internet regulation in the U.S., uh, the U.S. has uh, long held the position that um, uh, we need to provide uh, what uh, uh, um, uh, some scholars uh, like uh, 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 like China would call the permissive legal framework. Uh, which aims to minimize government regulation or control on the internet and relies heavily uh, on uh, self-regulation in the sector. Uh, so uh, such policy is even codified in the law. For example, if you look at the Telecom Act of 1996, it says that the policy of the U.S. is to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. You know, I think uh, somebody from Cato must have drafted this uh, regulation because it sounds very Cato-like. Um, so it's no surprise that uh, the U.S. would push for deregulation and a free flow of information at the international level. Uh, and this, is a, this has been a long-standing policy uh, because if you look at the history of the discussion, in the WTO, for example, the first time the WTO started to discuss uh, e-commerce issues that was pushed uh, by the Clinton administration back in 1997 when they launched the Global Economic uh, Commerce uh, Initiative. Uh, so um, that is the position for the U.S. On the other hand, for China, the Internet has always been subject to heavy government regulation. So I have another paper that is coming up uh, uh, next month. And in this paper, I trace the evolution of the Chinese internet regulation. And I argue that Chinese regulation has evolved from regulation of the hardware when the internet first appeared in China in 1994 to the regulation of content and now the regulation of data. So the whole regulatory approach is quite, uh, has been quite restrictive for a long time. And this is uh, uh, basically kept uh, over uh, in the digital age. For the EU, in contrast, they have a long tradition of human rights protection, and this is partly in response to the atrocities of the Second World War. So they realize that uh, um, human rights uh, uh, um, is very important, and privacy, if you look at the GDPR, uh, has been elevated into uh, a human right, a fundamental human right under the GDPR, not just regarded as, for example, in the U.S. as a purely consumer right. So the EU approach is also uh, uh, very interesting in that it regulates privacy as a fundamental human right, and that will have major implications around the world. But even though uh, these three different restrictions have all these different approaches, uh, I do not think, uh, uh, as some people might have argued, that uh, it is impossible for them to agree on a global deal because at the end of the day, you might find them to agree to some uh, uh, lowest common denominator. And we already see that emerging. For example, you see that the U.S. increasingly resort 
to, uh, 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 to security exceptions, uh, for example, the recent restrictions on WeChat and TikTok. And China, on the other hand, China also started to agree to provisions on free flow of data and the prohibition on data localization requirements. As you can see, to China's commitments in the e-commerce chapter of the recently concluded RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. Uh, so uh, again, I, I, I'm uh, a bit optimistic in seeing that uh, you know a fruitful conclusion can be uh, done in the WTO or another global forum, if not the WTO, but. Uh, of course, I, I would hope for the WTO, which I will be happy to discuss later. Thank you, Sam. Thank you very much, Henry. Uh, that was great. Uh, great. Great that you also brought the EU in there. Uh, so what we're going to do now is, is turn to a series of questions, and I have some prepared. I also see uh, some coming in from uh, from from uh, viewers from the audience out there. Um, I, I know it's it's in the U.S. It's it's uh, the East Coast. It's late at night, so you know if you're too tired, that's okay. But if you've got the energy, throw in some questions. I'll, I'll try to get to them. I'm sure we won't get to all of them. Um, I'll, I'll dive right in now. So. My, my first question, and this is kind of a, a big picture question on international governance and international negotiations. So my question, it's maybe a series of questions. How will the various digital trade agreements be implemented and enforced? So there, there are a number of options here. You have litigation, you have discussion and oversight through committees, you have behind the scenes political pressure, you have soft law principles filtering down into domestic law, are different options uh, appropriate for different types of obligations? What's your view on how international governance will or should work under these agreements? And I'll turn first to, to Neha to answer that question. Thanks, Simon. Um, so I think um, in the long run, um, a variety of tools will be used, I think, to implement international trade agreements, whether it's dispute resolution methods. I think even some investment arbitration in the coming years could be relevant to the digital sector. But having said that, I don't know if it would be desirable to have digital trade disputes in the short run. As we discussed, there isn't enough global consensus on many of these issues. And there's also uncertainty regarding how uh, a WTO law, FTAs, the entire network of international trade agreements apply to the digital trade, uh, to, to digital trade disputes. Uh, but having, I mean, my, my sense is that the ambition for a digital trade framework should be more about setting up a more sophisticated, multi-layered framework uh, for implementing digital trade rules. Uh, so therefore using a network of institutions and not just multilateral institutions, but also multi-stakeholder institutions and perhaps even private uh, private bodies, especially if you think of private standard setting organizations and their pivotal role in the digital space. I think it would be these network of uh, institutions coming together, uh, listening to each other, liaising with each other and still working within their specific domains of expertise. I think this would move towards what David was calling the interoperability amongst uh, different regulators and re different regulatory models. In terms of rules, because one component of your questions was in terms of the kind of rules that can inform uh, such a governance framework, 
I think it would it should ideally be a combination of some of the fundamental principles of international trade law because they are pivotal again to uh, a global trade uh, framework, uh, principles of non-discrimination, transparency, due process. But there would also be soft law norms uh, or some kinds of codes, best practices that emerge in many of these areas um, that can be coupled with trade rules. So ultimately, the framework is much more multi-layered and complex. Uh, and I think this is a better option than binding legal obligation in international treaties, whether they are trade treaties or other cybersecurity treaties or uh, other uh, conventions, cybercrime conventions, because they are much harder to negotiate. And the outcome, therefore, is either they become very inflexible in nature or they are just too weak to be effective. Um, and the challenge is perhaps in this kind of a framework to generate that kind of trust and cooperation between these different policy networks and then to get that right balance between ensuring transparency but and accountability, but also making sure that the policies and that come out of this regime are still effective and, uh, can, and can, have, can have some effect in the real world. Thank you. Thank you, Neha. Let, let me turn to, to David for that same question. So how do you see international governance working in this area? Yeah, so I think it's I think it's a complicated um, picture and not a kind of one tool fits all. Um, and, and maybe hearkening a little back to, to Neha's points before, um, I would kind of distinguish uh, two types of rules. One is the more traditional trade agreement, thou shall not rules um, of not treating goods or services from your own uh, national origin, you know, more favorably than you do of a foreign provider, MFN principles, transparency principles, market access principles. Um, and, and there are others too, you know, in the world of TBT and least trade restrictive um, regulation. And I think that's an area where, yes, we're talking about new issues, um, but it's really new subject matter. The issues are actually quite old and well developed. Um, and there's no reason that, that longstanding rules shouldn't be applied in a digital context. And indeed, we've already seen that, maybe not in some of the super hot button issues that we're talking about today, but actually one real hot button issue, we forget sometimes a very early, or not early, but you know, a bunch of years ago, WTO case actually dealt with censorship issues and the distribution of audio visual materials in China, um, which the US litigated and the US won at the WTO, not challenging the censorship regime per se, but the way that China was implementing that censorship uh, regime in a way that wasn't least trade restrictive um, and um, uh, that ultimately was restricting kind of who could provide distribution services in China, right? So those are kind of age-old WTO concepts applied in a new form. Um, or the, the, the dispute over the um, information technology agreement, looking at all kinds of new technologies, applying old principles, and again, picking up something Neha, Neha said before, this critical notion of technology neutrality. The principles apply. We don't care necessarily whether the particular technologies have changed in how a service or a product is being delivered. And that I would say, and I'm not, uh, I'm not speaking with my hat as a former uh, uh, WTO uh, lawyer looking for, for cases, but, I, but 
I think litigation or really disputes can play a role in that and in, in resolving issues um, uh, uh, between countries. I think the second set of rules, which is really more the getting into newer issues around what should affirmative obligations and norms be around different digital regulations about how should a privacy be approached or other new issues, which which, as some have noted, have already started to come into different trade agreements. I wouldn't rule out that dispute settlement can play a role in that, but I think those are areas that are um, that are trickier and, and, and more being developed. But to me, like the, the the critical place that we are now in the global conversation in this period of kind of just an explosion of all different kinds of regulation is at a minimum, the common norms that we um, expect for any kind of trade regulation that have ultimately um, uh, in, you know, reap the benefits of, of trade when they're complemented with the right domestic policies, we should be doing the same thing in, in the trade space. Thanks, David. Um, let me turn now to an, another big picture question. Uh, and I'm going to try to incorporate something that I, an audience question into this. I'm not sure they exactly fit together, but I'll try it anyway. So my question is, what is the ideal structure for international agreements in this area? Should they be almost global at the WTO? Should they be regional, bilateral, plurilateral coalitions of the willing? What structure is best and what is best and what's most likely to emerge in practice. And so let me then tie in this question that we got from the audience. So this goes back to interoperability, but he says, Felipe, I think from on Facebook says, on interoperability and trade agreements, how can we leverage the ongoing WTO-based JSI uh, on domestic regulations? Although there are no specific disciplines dealing with interoperability, there's ample room to innovate and advance the agenda under the new schedules. What do you think? So that's two questions that are only marginally related um, and feel free to, to dive in on either of those. Let me turn first to, to Henry on this question uh, of you know, what, what's, the, what's the international structure uh, that's most likely to emerge and what's best here? Sure, thank you, Simon. Uh, I, I think the most ideal structure would be a sort of a global deal. And I think the most ideal candidate would be at the WTO because the WTO uh, has a long history of uh, uh, regulating all these uh, global trade and uh, trade related issues. And uh, it, uh, to be frank, has a very good record in this, much uh, a better record than the other international organizations. Uh, but this most ideal situation has not really happened. Uh, even though the WTO has been discussing the issue for more than 20 years, as I mentioned earlier, since 1998. So uh, in its place, uh, uh, if you look uh, at the reality on the ground, we have uh, all these uh, regional deals like the CPTPP, like the USMCA, like the RCEP, and all these bilateral agreements, especially those uh, uh, concluded by the US. So the US has been including digital trade provisions in almost uh, all these FTAs that has assigned uh, since uh, uh, the early 2000. So uh, uh, that is the current situation that we have now. And also in the WTO, uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Simon, uh, we have this uh, so-called GSI Joint Statement Initiative, uh, which started from the uh, WTO uh, conference in Buenos Aires uh, uh, three years ago. 
Uh, and all these joint statement initiatives are what we call a prolateral DOC in the WTO, which means that uh, uh, not all WTO members would join the negotiation, only some WTO members would join the negotiation. So it's basically a coalition of a willing, uh, as you uh, mentioned. And currently there are, I think, about 90 WTO members which are uh, in the GSI commerce negotiation. Uh, and all these uh, GSI, as far as I understand, are, are separate from each other so that um, uh, your participation in the uh, e-commerce GSI would not uh, uh, prejudice uh, your uh, positions, for example, in the domestic regulation GSI. But I, I, I think we can still see some continuity in the submissions by the countries uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, all these uh, uh, different uh, GSI initiatives. So for example, uh, the US has been very concerned with the transparency. So it has tabled many transparency proposals, so which I think are uh, uh, reflected in both uh, the domestic regulation and also the uh, e-commerce submissions. So uh, uh, there would be some kind of uh, uh, crossover, I think, between GSIs, but at the end of the day, uh, if uh, this GSI gets concluded, I think your obligation is uh, still subject to whatever the specific obligations in the GSI that you are participating. Uh, and unless they are all uh, brought over and multilateralized uh, in the WTO uh, in some way, uh, I, I, I don't think you can really cross over the, uh, the uh, obligations from one uh, to the other. That, that would be a long way. I think uh, the most realistic uh, thing to happen now would be for them to agree to some sort of deal in each of these GSI first. And they each operate in like a separate uh, parallel universe, you know, so that they do not really interact with each other. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. Um, Neha, do you want to weigh in on this? What is the what is the the likely? What's the best structure for these agreements, and what's most likely to emerge? Um, well, the optimist in me wants to agree with Henry that it would be ideal to have a WTO, a multilateral framework under the WTO, and if not a multilateral, at least a uh, a, a high quality plurilateral agreement which covers many of these substantive issues. I think the reality, and uh, Henry already spoke about this, is that there might be more regional and bilateral initiatives that become prevalent, at least in the short run. Um, and I think that while there is possibility of top-down and bottom-up policy movement in this space, the, the likelihood is more about bottom-up policy movement. So for instance, uh, where regional and bilateral initiatives are successful, uh, uh, they are likely to be replicated elsewhere, probably uh, at a broader regional level or maybe at a global level. Uh, and maybe this would help in some level of interoperability across regimes, uh, depending on how they develop. Um, and let me just, I mean, if you think of the developments, they're quite interesting. If you look at the CPTPP and the RCEP, uh, despite uh, coming from very different uh, or reflecting different policy priori priorities, the architecture of both the electronic commerce chapters are quite similar. The, the provisions, the substantive provisions are different, but the architecture is quite similar, which kind of indicates that all countries uh, are invested in this economic aspect of digital trade, even though even those countries which are not evidently uh, supporters of free trade. Uh, so I think this, the, this, these kinds of development at regional and bilateral level are going to be very crucial. Um, one, another, another aspect that I think is 
relevant is regional coalitions, especially for developing countries who don't have that kind of voice in mega regional uh, discussions or in, in negotiations at the GSI. Uh, I think regional coalition gives them a better voice. Uh, and in some of the recent work that I have been doing where I have been examining recent FTA e-commerce chapters and FTAs, there is actually very little that deals with the digital development dimension of, uh, of, of that affects developing countries, even basic issues like regulatory assistance, assistance and technical capacity building. So I think some of these regional coalitions would be an important counterweight if and where they develop successfully, whether it's in Africa or Southeast Asia or in South America. So I think, yeah, it's a more of a complex framework, uh, definitely in the short run, in my view. Thanks, Neha. Uh, okay, for my next question, I want to turn to something that I think Henry already touched on, but I want to put the question out there and get David's take on it, and Henry can respond if you want, but you know, maybe he said everything he, he, he has to say and he doesn't have to, but he can respond if you want. So my question is, as, as Henry you know, suggested to us, there are uh, countries, there, there, there are different countries out there, there's China, the US, and the EU, whether it's country or not, um, have, have very different domestic policies and cultural norms, and you know, what I wonder is, do the differences between these three um, and the rest of the world as well, there are differences among all of the countries out there, does that make uh, the task of coming to meaningful international agreements here uh, just too daunting? I mean, is it really possible to, to get um, international consensus and agreement on, on many of the issues when you have you know, so many countries with just different cultural norms and, and domestic politics? David, what, what's your take on that? So as as a as a trade policy warrior, my my answer has to be yes to that question, Simon. Um, uh, look, the honest answer is there are some things and differences that are can be bridged, and some that aren't. And I think that really speaks to the issues that um, Neha and Henry were just talking about in terms of different approaches to to governance. So there are going to be certain issues where one can reach agreement at a global level and um, some some of the, the different kind of approaches that, that Henry alluded to um, can can be can be bridged and there are going to be others that that can't be and and um, you know hence bilateral agreements and regional agreements and and by the way I'd note a lot of these are happening um, uh, sometimes not with the US at the table of course RCEP and, and some initiatives like that. Um, but, but also sort of what I would call almost more digital forward uh, agreements and initiatives like the agreements that uh, uh, Singapore has been pursuing, the digital economy partnership uh, agreements in, in the region, which I think is a really interesting um, uh, uh, model, uh, which to your point on um, uh, there are differences in, in domestic regulatory approaches. Um, looking at softer norms and, and dialogues before you take that step of writing and firm binding commitments and um, encouraging regulator-to-regulator uh, -regulator dialogue, um, encouraging, you know, as new regulations on AI or other issues are developed, making sure that the trade policymakers are at the table so they're considering the questions of interoperability and how this affects cross-border commerce. But maybe it's not quite ripe for, you know, 
rule binding rules that are subject to dispute settlement and, and maybe it's not ripe for kind of multilateral consensus. So um, I think it really is a question of we, we need a bunch of different uh, tools here um, and there are some issues we're going to bridge and some issues that, that we're not. Let Henry respond if he wants, but let me turn to a question I see coming from the that just came in from the audience that re, that relates to this. And um, you know, Henry, you can respond to this, or or respond to David, or other people can weigh in here. So the question is: Is there a danger that the United States is not engaging enough at the WTO and regional trade agreements to write new rules on digital trade that protect free commerce, and that in a few years a lot of the rules set by China and the EU might become the global norm? So. I mean, let me turn first to, to Henry on either a response to David or, or that question, and then I'll turn to the others if they have thoughts on U.S. engagement here. Okay, so let me start with the question from the audience, Simon. Uh, I'm not too worried about the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, losing out uh, in this uh, competition, uh, setting the rules, because I think the U.S. has been quite active in WTO negotiations, and uh, uh, I personally think uh, that is where the uh, uh, real rules are being made. And uh, coming back to the WTO, I, I uh, don't think the WTO is uh, ever about forcing everyone to the same standard, but uh, my review of the WTO is, as you mentioned earlier, Simon, that uh, is more about ensuring interoperability between different regimes. So you you, you see all these different uh, regimes, these different models that I mentioned earlier, but as I also argue that uh, we start to see some convergence. So in the WTO, I, I think even though some people are quite uh, pessimistic about the prospects for the GSIE commerce negotiation, uh, but I'm more optimistic uh, because we already have uh, 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 examples of success in the WTO. If you look at, for example, the trade facilitation agreement, when the first started, it was uh, quite divisive. I mean, many development countries were really unhappy to be dragged along to negotiate on trade facilitation. But in the end, we had an agreement. Why? Because uh, uh, the TFA took uh, the uh, approach of having a kind of a tiered obligations depending on the development levels or willingness of individual members. And this is something that we could use for the GSI e-commerce negotiation. All what we could do is we could adopt something similar to the deeper, as David mentioned earlier, you know, a kind of a modular approach so that you have a different uh, uh, modules uh, and uh, countries can pick and choose as which individual uh, module uh, that they would accept. But we, I, I said we already, start to see the lowest common denominator. If you look at all these FTAs concluded by the US, by China, and by the EU, uh, I think the consensus now is that uh, the minimum standard will have to include some fundamental agreement uh, to free flow of data across the border and also prohibition on data localization requirements. And then as to how much uh, security uh, exception or privacy exception that you would put there, uh, that is a subject to haggling, but I think uh, if we agree to this uh, uh, fundamental, uh, um, uh, you know, obligation of a free flow of data and uh, prohibition on data localization requirements, uh, then we are in a pretty good shape already. Thank you. Thanks, Henry. Let me just quickly see if Dave, I think David, you might be most in tune with, uh, you know, what the, the U.S. negotiators are thinking right now. What would you say to the question of whether the U.S. is engaging enough uh, on this issue? 
look, that's a, that's a um, I think we're we're early in a new uh, in a new new administration, and you know let 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 the U.S. government, USTR, speak for itself. I think in general, um, this has been a real area of of priority for for the U.S. government, both um, across the executive branch and, and and in Congress. And you know, I think what's really interesting about these conversations from you know ten years ago is it's not just you know a handful of really you know, internet uh, companies, right? All companies are, are, are digital companies today and you correspondingly have seen just kind of a wide level of interest on these issues across uh, uh, various U.S. stakeholder communities and the U.S. business community. So um, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the U.S. will continue to be uh, at the table. Obviously, there, there will be a lot of, uh, or there is a lot of discussion and debate about you know what the what the U.S. should be negotiating and what it, what agreements are, are, are ripe or, or not. Um, I would just note that um, you know a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. and the EU at the uh, or I guess last week at the U.S. EU summit announced this transatlantic trade and technology council. That's that's very far 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 from a trade agreement or something like that. But it just sort of shows I think the hunger and interest uh, of engaging uh, on these issues and. Uh, across countries and the need for uh, developing uh, developing norms in this space. Thanks, David. Um, okay, so we're getting close to the end of the time. So I'm going to uh, skip ahead a question. That's just a note to the panelists. So uh, my question, this is a question for, for Neha and others can weigh in if they want. Um, so sometimes these agreements are referred to as digital trade or e-commerce agreements, but it seems to me that, that in terms of the substance that they're often broader than that. Uh, they might be about data flows or digital governance generally. Uh, so I guess my question, questions are, is trade agreement a misleading term here? Um, should this even be part of the trade regime? I mean, we've seen examples where sometimes the digital rules are a chapter in a trade agreement. Sometimes they're just a separate agreement on their own. And for example, the U.S.-Japan um, digital agreement. Uh, you know, how should we do this? Are, are trade folks... Uh, you know, qualified to handle this? Should this really be, you know, put off somewhere else? And we've seen this kind of debate um, already with intellectual property and labor and the environment. And so I guess the, the broad question is, does digital trade, do, do digital governance issues belong in the trade regime or would it be better if there was sort of a, a separate regime outside of, outside of the trade context? Um, thank you, Simon. So my, my view is that a lot of issues that are covered in the trade agreements, in these digital trade agreements or the e-commerce chapters of some of these FTAs, um, they deal more with regulatory barriers, non-tariff barriers. Uh, and that kind of is discomforting in some sense because trade agreements have traditionally been about tariff barriers, not, not regulatory barriers. A lot of focus, uh, if you think of the GATT, um, uh, a lot of focus was on regulatory barriers. Uh, so, but so I don't necessarily think it's out of context within a trade agreement. Um, and similarly, in terms of expertise, surely I mean, trade folks are not qualified in all domains of digital regulation. They, as I said before, they should not be a standard-setting body. Uh, but this is a you know this is a complex regulatory framework, and the WTO or other trade organizations have their role. Uh, 
uh, in this complex framework to deal with a certain dimension of uh, digital re regulation. I mean, at the end of the day, is there an acknowledgement within the trade policy circles that these issues are cross-cutting? -cut Certainly, there is a there is definitely an acknowledgement, but we've not got to that stage yet where different institutions are coordinating with each other. So I recently read an OECD paper which uh, where they, the researchers found that there are 52 instruments in 24 different fora on digital trade, which just shows the number of stakeholders in this in this area. So it's definitely a very complex framework and all the solutions, not all the problems arise out of trade agreements and not all the solutions can be also prescribed within trade agreements. And I also don't think it's a wise idea to treat this as a separate domain of regulation, even within the trade context, because if you think of um, if you think of the economy at large, we live in a digital economy. Um, even very traditional processes such as manufacturing or logistics are highly data-driven. Uh, they are dependent on digital trade. So there's no escaping from this deep integration uh, of the digital with the rest of the economy. Uh, and I think it would be unwise to kind of leave this out uh, completely from, uh, from trade regulation. Um, it would be going in the wrong direction. Um, so yeah I, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily out of context, but I do agree that we should tread with caution and be very clear about what a trade agreement can do and can't do and know where trade agreements should incorporate international standards by reference or where they should just play a proactive part in a larger policy network. Definitely, that caution is very necessary. Thank you, Neha. Uh, this might be the last question. I see we're coming close to coming close to the time, and this one's going to get a little bit into the weeds. So, for anyone still paying attention out there, I'll, I'll start with, with Henry. Anyone else can weigh in if they want. So, you know, my question, and this is something I wrote a short paper about. This some well, some aspect of this. Um, what is the the core of these agreements? Is it about nationality based non discrimination, and is that what the provisions entitled non discrimination are about? Is that what the provisions on free flow of data are about? Do we need both of these provisions? I mean, I guess the question is, do we have the, the principles worked out um, when, you know, it, it's, it's just not clear to me exactly what, what the core of this is. And Henry, do you have, do you have thoughts on this? Well, you know, is, is non-discrimination defined properly in these agreements? Is that the core principle? Uh, somewhere in there are some questions that you might want to answer, and I'll turn to you. Yeah, thank you, Simon. Uh, well, non-discrimination is a favorite uh, for trade lawyers, so I can see why you raised that. Uh, and you could indeed argue that uh, these agreements are really about non-discrimination, but different types. Uh, for example, data flow by definition, uh, the such restrictions affect uh, only foreign websites, so you can see that it's uh, MFN. And the data localization discriminate against the foreign firms in favor of the local firms. So you can see that it's national treatment obligation. But if you look at all these uh, agreements keeps popping, popping up, you can see that they actually go beyond the narrow non-discrimination obligations because these agreements also include provisions on for example, e-commerce trade facilitation or enabling e-commerce type of provisions. 
They also include provisions regulating the behavior of firms like uh, personal information protection, online consumer protection, unsolicited uh, messages, and so on. And now, uh, if you look at the GSI uh, negotiations, you can see that more provisions are being inserted in such, into such agreements. For example, the GSI proposals include provisions on access to and use of internet for e-commerce, telecom equipment provisions, which are called the Huawei provision because it was proposed by China. So I, I would say that it started with non-discrimination, but that is the bare minimum. And we are going to see all sorts of provisions in this negotiation. Thanks very much, Henry. Uh, I, I think we're at 10 o'clock now, and I think I have to, to close this out. Uh, thank you very much to the panelists for joining me at this late or early hour, depending where you are. Uh, thank you to the attendees for watching. Uh, I tried to, to work in the questions I could get to. If I didn't get to yours, I'm sorry. Uh, the recording will be available on Cato's website uh, shortly. And uh, thank you very much, and have a good rest of the evening or a good rest of your day.